By April 1946, the city of Texarkana was reeling from the murders of four young people and the attack of two others. The first three attacks had taken place on the Texas side of Texarkana, but that would all change on May 3, 1946. As authorities deal with another set of murders and no solid suspects, the citizens of Texarkana were left to fear the madman in their midst. Join us as we continue our discussion of the Texarkana Phantom Killer and dive into the darkness, one crime at a time. Welcome to One Crime at a Time. I'm your host, Shannon. With me, as always, my sister from the same mister, Crystal Tina. <laughs> hey, everybody. That's what I used to call her when we were little. <laughs> so, I just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> she found that very amusing. What's up, Crystal Tina? Not much. What's up with you? I just live in the dream. I had a week off and didn't do shit. <laughs> Well, I didn't have a week off, and I worked my ass off, but, you know, that's well, that's every week. I, I didn't. I had something special happen to me the other night, if, y'all, if you would like to hear it. What? So, I, I got another piercing in my left ear, and this time I got, like, a really, really small earring and a little stud. And, of course, it's not fully healed yet, because I just got it, like, a couple of weeks ago. You don't need any more holes in your head. I've <laughs> got too many. So, I was in the shower night before last, you know, and I had my bath cloth, and I was just washing behind my ears, you know, trying to get clean, and apparently my rag got caught on my, on the back of my earring, uh, and it pulled uh, the entire earring through my ear from the front to the back, so I had to like, and it hurt like a motherfucker. I imagine it did. <laughs> so, I had to push it back through to the front. So I'm these headphones that I've got right now on my ears. I just want you to know that it 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 really hurt. You need to take no. You need to. uh, Did you take the earring out? No. You need to take it out. I don't want to take it out. I need to to stay there. You have to take it out. I just pushed it back through. No, you need to take it out. I just pushed it back through. You need to take it out. (laughs) I'm telling you now. We're gonna. I'm gonna ride this out. Let that heal up. Because you have in, you have majorly injured that ear, and then go get it redone. It hurts bad, but we're gonna. Um... Well, that's because it's not gonna heal. It's gonna heal up around that earring. You need to take it out. Well, it'll be all right. No, it. Won't. I'll look at it when we get out of here. But I'm just. But right now, it just just it really hurts. Oh. So. Well, if you take the earring out, it wouldn't hurt as bad. If you'll come here. I'll take it I'm out. I'm playing hurt, guys. No, I'm just playing. I mean, it really does hurt, but it'll be all right. So, I just thought you hear I would. that? That's the world's smallest violin. Because <laughs> it wouldn't hurt as bad if you take the earring out. But I need it during the hole to grow up. You need the hole to grow up and go get it redone because what's going to happen is it's going to grow around that but earring. You know, that's going to be another hundred bucks. It's going to be more when they have to cut that earring out. <laughs> Well, we'll just see how it plays out. Uh, yeah, I'll keep everyone updated. It'll be fun. Okay. <laughs> it'll, it'll be a good time. Y'all keep in mind, I told her. <laughs> well, you are on the record, okay? <laughs> Everybody heard you. America, 
You actually, heard the it. world. The world heard you. You heard it. Not just America. We're actually doing really well in Australia for some reason. I, I don't like <laughs> Australia. I don't know why, but I have always wanted to go to Australia. Yeah, they're in um, Great Britain, so thank yes. you guys. I've always wanted to go over yeah. there. Um, Canada, United States, doing really well with us. Yeah, so thanks yeah. everybody. Yes. I haven't ever been to Canada yet. I went to Canada one time by accident. <laughs> she got and, lost. And I almost <laughs> crossed moved, the border. And I didn't have any ID with me or anything. And they she did, almost went to and jail. And they didn't want to let me back in the in the United States. <laughs> she, she almost became a Canadian citizen. <laughs> I was almost <laughs> stuck in Canada. Because she got lost. <laughs> I accidentally went to Canada. This is why you don't let Shannon drive when you're traveling. You'll get stuck in another country. <laughs> For the record, I wasn't the one driving, but I wasn't any help. I'll put it that way. But yeah, hey, I, she was probably supposed to be reading the map. I did get stuck in. I'd almost. I went to Canada accidentally one time. So there's that. There's a lot of places I, I want to go. A lot of places <laughs> left in the United States I still want to yeah. go because this is a big country and it is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that commentary. You're welcome. <laughs> drive, people. Quit flying. You it's can drive beautiful. to Canada. Canada's beautiful. You can drive to Alaska. From what I've seen it. It's not a very good road, but you can drive to Alaska. <laughs> That's not another country. No, but you have to go through another country to get there. Okay, now that today's ge that was geography with Shannon and Christina. All right, so we need to get started because today's episode is going to be another long one. Of course. Well, I can't help it. There's just stuff people need to know about these cases, and I feel that it's my job to tell them. Your job? My, sorry to say my position. But then I halfway through it realized I didn't make sense. It's her pajab. That, that's a new word we've invented. It's halfway through that, I realized it didn't make any sense. We, so we, we have intertwined position and job, so now it's a pajab. I shifted gears there, halfway through the word. So, um, I need to tell you also that today's episode is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at podgo, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And be sure to add our podcast in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. We would very much appreciate it. We are also brought to you by our subscribers on Patreon. Yes. You guys rock. We love you. Thank you so much. If you I'm, doing, like, I'm doing a little dance for y'all. You <laughs> that can't you can't see. see. If you would like to help support the show, you can for as little as a dollar a month. We have several levels that include access to our exclusive Patreon feed, mini-sodes, merchandise, and commercial-free episodes. So yep. you can go check that out if you so desire. Now it's time, once again, for Christina's favorite part of the show. It's the weekly review. Yay! Dun, 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 dun. I it's like one this review. Because this is where we get to hear from you. Yeah. This comes from Eugene Isbell. Eugene Isbell. Yes. Okay. And I think that we may have had one from Eugene before. Maybe I'm thinking about another Eugene. But anyway. We've had a Eugene. I, I we've had know. a Eugene. It's the same yeah. guy. Says, these chicks are crazy. Yeah, we know. Thank you. 
I love the hosts. The fact that they are sisters definitely comes across in the conversations. They delve into the facts, and the discussions are insightful and sometimes hilarious. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> Thanks to them, I know to make sure my kids stay off of roofs. <laughs> LOL. See? See? This is the wait, public service announcement. Don't let your kids, kids roll off the roof. Don't let them play on the roof. Keep them off. That's a throwback to our solder children episode. Yes. If you haven't heard that, go check that out. Thank you, Eugene. We appreciate it. Yes, appreciate thank you. you. So, to our story. When we left off last week, we had three young couples that had been attacked in Texarkana, Texas, with four of those being murdered. After the second set of murders occurred, the citizens, of course, were in a total state of fear. And within hours of the discovery of the bodies of Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin on that Palm Sunday, the city was in just a rare state of tension. Okay. I mean, they were used to crime and stuff in Texarkana, yeah, but, that's a little but bit not, different. yeah. They weren't used to this type of. This is new. Yeah, this is new stuff. This is new crime on top of the old crime. <laughs> new crime we aren't used to. Old we, crime we bring, can deal with. Bring back the old days. <laughs> we need old days. We need oldie day crime. <laughs> we need crimes from the olden days. Now, fear of the night rose in a way that none had experienced before. People there started um, keeping their window shades up and started locking their doors. Because before this, even with the crime that was going on, they still didn't feel the need to lock their doors. But after these four murders, they're like, hey, we might need to lock our doors. But did teenagers and young couples stop going out parking? Well, I'm about to talk about that. Okay? Okay. People who had never owned weapons before bought guns or improvised. Okay, stop right there. This is Texas. You can't tell me (laughs) that them people out there did not own a gun. (laughs) Liar. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying that there maybe if there had been somebody that didn't have a gun, maybe on the Arkansas side. But they anyway, guns were purchased in the. They just bought. They bought more guns. Okay. Or they improvised by keeping knives or clubs nearby. Okay. Really? Yeah. I've always wondered these people, like on movies, when someone breaks into their house, they get a baseball bat. If these people got a gun, buddy, that a bat ain't going to do nothing. Yeah, but you can sneak up on them with a bat and just knock them out. But what if you can't? But you could. But what if you could? (laughs) It never worked. (laughs) Arkansas State Trooper Max Tackett. You remember we talked about him. Yeah. Now, why is the Arkansas State Trooper coming over to Texas to... Well, this is just him being interviewed in the year. In this the is just him years. telling everybody what he thinks. Yeah. Well, this there's a reason he's involved in this case, and this these interviews came at a later date. But okay. He said, quote, People armed themselves and were quick to shoot. The biggest danger for a policeman was the chance of getting shot by good citizens. It was just risking death to go out there in civilian clothing. <laughs> Unquote. <laughs> A visiting hardware salesman told Thomas Perky that his Dallas-based company's warehouse had been depleted of handguns and rifles within three days of the Spring Lake Park murders. Now, this was when you could still buy a gun at a hardware store. Yeah, and, and auto shop stores. Because Mama used to work at an auto shop store. and you could, that's The where Western the, Auto. And that's where she um, bought some of our daddy's guns yeah. when he was still alive. Now, all of those guns 
went to Texarkana from that one warehouse in three within three See, days. I think they did that on purpose. <laughs> They're like, hey, time these to ship some guns to Texarkana. You know these people in Texas. Let's they take advantage of this. We can make some cashiola. That is why they make had some more scratch. purchase of guns. I mean, they're available. Why not buy them? Yeah. Safety of young people became paramount in the minds of men and women over the city, especially among those who had children. And within days, the entire town appeared to be in a consensus about implementing a curfew. They weren't worried about their kids before? Well, I guess they were extra special worried about them now. Oh, okay. Now, now it's... Let me guess. They let them play on the roof. We've got... Yeah. Before this, there was roof play going on everywhere. (laughs) Now they can't play on the roof. The Texarkana Teen Canteen, which is the best name for a little cafe ever, the Texarkana Teen Canteen, that changed its hours and provided adult escorts to each youth's car. So, well, weren't they a, all killed in their car, though? Yeah. So, is that really going to make a difference? Well, it's, it's they're just being careful. Well, when they left here, we escorted them to their <laughs> car. We they left here fine. It's not our problem what happens See, after they're, that. They're covering their own it's ass. The, <laughs> the Paramount Theater canceled its midnight movie. Oh, man. Yeah. They all like the midnight movie. Yeah, but you can't go to a midnight movie now. And the Texarkana Ministerial Alliance adopted a resolution to petition both city councils to close all public places of amusement on midnight at midnight on Saturdays. So they didn't want anybody out past midnight. Okay. On the weekends. Okay. It was a scary time for youngsters. I thought I just called them youngsters. Because <laughs> you're so old. <laughs> That's like the other guy the other day, this little guy that... At work, I had to call him for something. I don't remember what it was, but he called me ma'am. Ma'am. Yeah. I'm not ready to be a ma'am yet. Yeah. <laughs> so, just I won't even let my kids on the bus call me, like, <laughs> Miss Medley. I'm like, no, y'all can call me Miss, but call me Miss Chris, because that Miss Medley stuff, I'm not old enough for that. I don't, I'm not ma'am age, am I? Well, I mean, because somebody I mean, like probably Waylon I, and Emma's age, yeah, but not uh, not I mean, this someone close, like, like in like, their twenties. Yeah, no. he well, he just graduated college, and I'm a ma'am. <sighs> well, I mean, technically, just, I could be his mom. I mean, he's just being. Nice. I mean, not even technically. Like, I could really like. I could have a child. I could have married and had a child his age. Well, I could have a lot of. Oh my gosh! I'm, okay, maybe I am ma'am age. I'm sitting here trying to. I just okay. I'm gonna put a poll on Twitter. Is Shannon ma'am age? (laughs) Not just somebody who's in their twenties. Now I would say somebody like in their teens. But I'm saying they could. He could be my kid. He could be. But if if I had a kid and they had friends and stuff, I mean, they would be calling me ma'am. If my kid was that age, never mind. Let's just move on. This is depressing me. Teenagers felt as if they were being targeted by the Phantom, and I don't know why they would feel that way. But Only because teenagers have all been... No, there were two that weren't teenagers. Yeah, they were. Well, there was a, an older guy who was 27 with the... 29 who was with the 17-year-old. That's right. But maybe they thought he was a teenager. Yeah, and they felt that they were more at risk than the adults, and the paranoia of the parents didn't really do anything well, to maybe just don't lessen go out their fears. On, don't go out on Dark Dirt Road's parking, and maybe you'll be okay. Yeah. 
If they went anywhere at night, they took guns with them and went in groups. They did that so this anyway. Is to win. They did that anyway. I'm <laughs> and, telling and you. And usually just went to hang out at each other's houses. What if it was one of them doing the killing? <gasps> Were they really safe? <laughs> Sometimes they'd go to a movie, but always in groups. There was no parking in cars anymore. And numerous mothers who were single or whose husbands were out of town would left their home during that time and would stay at the downtown hotel called the Grimm Hotel. I don't know that I would want to stay there. <laughs> the Grimm. We're going to head on down to the Grimm so we can feel safe. I want to know how that hotel got its name. I'm going to have to look <laughs> that up. I'm assuming maybe it's it's got to be somebody's name. I'm going to look it up. Why would you name a hotel the Grimm Hotel? Well, unless you had a sick sense of humor. Well, Maybe a lot of murders took place there and they just changed the name to the Grimm Hotel. Because it's just a grim place to be. It's just a grim place to be. Now, police were doing all they could to try to find, you know, who was responsible for these attacks. And they were being led by legendary Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Terrazas Lone Wolf Gonzalez. Remember, we talked about him earlier. The Martin Booker murders had brought him and additional rangers to Texarkana for an indefinite stay. As the ranger in charge, he was also the official spokesman, along with Sheriff Bill Presley, for the investigations. And this was a guy (laughs) who really relished the spotlight. I can only imagine. He really liked being in the spotlight. Gonzalez was soon holding regular press conferences at the downtown Grimm Hotel, which is where he was staying. And explaining his nickname, he once told a reporter, quote, I guess I got that nickname because I went into a lot of fights by myself, and I came out by myself, too, unquote. Oh, my God. Are you the most arrogant prick I've ever heard in my life? During his career, he was reputed to have killed as many as 75 men in the line of duty. However, a biographer eventually reduced that number to around 25. That's still too many. Well, but it's not 75. Okay, but... And he's just letting them talk like they're just... It's just stuff he's putting out there to build himself up. Most most police officers, let's just say in a 30-year career... Because most of them, <laughs> most of them retire after thirty years. Not all of them, but most of them, they never kill anybody. But yet, you're telling me you killed twenty five? Yes, he killed about twenty five people. And he was never investigated? No, he was the lone wolf. I don't give a flying flip who he is. <laughs> so this is a guy who might have been prone to exaggeration. Is might what I'm have been saying. prone to anger <laughs> issues too if he killed twenty five people in the line of duty. So, this guy, he was made to order for the reporters. He constantly provided good copy for the media, and it was said, like I said, that he relished his role and rarely disappointed. He was said to have a sense of the theatrical and knew how to dress and how to pose. He made a promise that the rangers would not leave Texarkana until officers apprehended the murderer or murderers. I bet he broke that promise or we wouldn't be doing this story. How do you know he ever left Texarkana? Is he? I'm going to. Somebody in Texarkana, <laughs> let me know if he's still there. I can. I will tell you later on, but you'll have. I mean, I know the answer to that question, but I'll tell you later. Okay. The Rangers, he's, 
the rangers would actually meet secretly in a back room of Boyd's pharmacy to plan operations on their own they without the knowledge that. of other law enforcement they officers. Can't do that. Well, they did. Well, they it's. <laughs> I mean, they can. They, they, they have did. done it, but they're not supposed to. Well, it doesn't matter. You didn't say they could. They're not supposed to, but they did. They had. These they have, pretty much had their own investigation going on. Well, apparently they botched it. Or again, we would not be doing this. You don't know that this person was never called. You don't know that. I haven't told you that yet. You don't know that, do you? Can you honestly sit there and tell me that? I can find out. (laughs) But right now, you don't know. I can find out. (laughs) Now, one of the rangers' plans they came up with was to set traps for the killer. They came up with the (laughs) idea. Now they're Fred on the Scooby Doo. Scooby Dooby Doo. (laughs) Okay, it could have ended it without before the song started. Everybody knows the damn Scooby-Doo. But it's just so addicting. (laughs) So the plan was that a ranger would drive into the countryside to a lonely road where lovers might go. The ranger would have with him a dressed-up female mannequin, luring the phantom into believing he had another easy pair of victims. Apparently the guy's not this that stupid. (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess it is a pretty good idea. The rangers no, didn't risk borrowing mannequins from a local oh, store. Oh, no, they just went and took one, right? No, they had them shipped in to keep the plan a secret. Because they didn't want anybody to know. <clears throat> and a tactic soon developed on both sides of town to simulate parked couples in remote parking sites. Distinct, disguising lawmen as couples with one as a woman hoping to lure the villain into a trap. So they had they get killed. So they had a, other cops instead of using mannequins. The local law enforcement was sending out two yeah, lawmen and that one dress, and makes one dress, more sense. <laughs> and one was be dressed as a because female. Because I'm sorry, people. Even in the dark, you can tell if something's <laughs> a mannequin or not. That, that girl hasn't moved in half an hour. <laughs> you really think he's not watching them before he goes out there? He's gonna stake them out for a few minutes before he just goes running out there. She hasn't moved, and they haven't touched each maybe other. Maybe he's already killed her. Oh, I gosh. ain't going to mess with that shit. <laughs> I'm out of here. So needless to say, those traps didn't work. You think? So they didn't have any luck with that, with that plan. Stupid police. I can hear him out in the bushes. He's stupid damn police. <laughs> Do they really think I was going to fall for that shit? It ain't like it's a huge town. Hell, I know the police officers. <laughs> Dumbass. And most women don't have mustaches. I ain't stupid. And they move every once in a while. And don't have fake hair. <laughs> That's good. That guy's got a mop on his head trying to convince me it's a wig. Jesus. I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> the cops did have a few suspects early on. There was a cab driver who became a suspect after it was reported that his cab was seen in the Spring Lake Park area early the, Saturday, the Sunday morning of the Martin Booker murders. Well, it is a cab. He could have been dropping somebody <laughs> off. I mean, <laughs> maybe the killer called a cab. <laughs> maybe he called a cab because his car wouldn't start. You don't know. <laughs> but still, I would think that the cab would have a reason to be there. Well, it depends. But his alibi soon checked out. The dispatch records, among other evidence, proved that he could not have been near the murder scene at the time of the murders. Somebody's out to get you, dude. <laughs> I saw him. I seen him out here. Somebody doesn't like you. 
Now, another suspect was a black man who James Presley just called Sammy in, in his book, The Phantom Killer. I could not find his real name anywhere. It was not in the FBI records. Maybe he didn't give it. He didn't want his real maybe name not. out Maybe there. they did never. Would, I, I didn't see it in any of the reports that well, I Well, he may not have wanted his name yeah. in it because, I mean, you can give information anonymous, yeah. anonymously. Well, this guy wasn't given information. He was being asked information. Anyway, he was about 35 years old and had no prior police record. However, there was physical and circumstantial evidence that placed him near where Betty Jo Booker's body had been found. And the most damning of that evidence were casts of car tracks near Spring Lake Park that matched Sammy's tires. Okay. This is a park. Right. I'm I'm not saying this guy didn't do it. Mm Mm-mm. Because I don't, you know, but it's a park. Do you think maybe people might visit the park? Well, and maybe. if they live away from it, they're going to drive there and park their car. Yeah. So, I mean, there might be a reason well, but, that it's But the police tra- have to check it out. Yeah, but they're saying that that's damning evidence. Not really. Well, I mean, but it's the reason that he was Okay, that is suspect. the reason he was a suspect. Yes. Okay. One of the biggest reasons. I got, now, I got you, man. He, right. he denied being the murderer and was willing to take a polygraph test. He failed. Quit taking these polygraph people, tests. People, I would never take a polygraph test. Ever. Because, I mean, these people things... People know that, my thoughts. Y'all know my thoughts on a polygraph. Well, first thing is, is they're not 100% accurate because... And they can use them, so why do Well, it? not that, but... I mean, you, any lawyer will tell you, do not take a polygraph it, test. This guy, being the time that it was... Was hauled into a police station. He was nervous as hell. Yeah. So that's going to pick up on that. So there's no way that that could have been an accurate test. Yeah. So he took it again. A second time. <clears throat> and he failed it again. A second uh, time. That's a messed up. That was a messed up test. You think? Or he's lying. So he took it a third time. And this time he failed too. But that doesn't mean so, that... <laughs> The police are thinking that they have their man. But Sheriff Presley, he wasn't so sure. Thank you, Mr. Presley. Presley didn't believe in charging a man with a capital crime on the basis of circumstantial evidence. Thank you. Even if a failed polygraph test seemed to back it up. So that's refreshing. Finally, somebody (laughs) with some sense. Where have you been for this whole... Ordeal. Where have you been during this whole podcast? Where have you been <laughs> since the beginning Sheriff of this Presley. podcast? So Presley decides to have Sammy put under hypnosis, which is another favorite police tool around well, and here. It's also very controversial yeah. because you can, even though they're under hypnosis, which can be done, but you can lead them into getting the yeah. answers that you want. So, as it turned out, Sammy was lying. It came out during the session that the night of the murders, Sammy and a friend had made some honky-tonks. You know what a honky-tonk is? Honky-tonk. It's a drink with beer and whiskey. Yes. And late that night, Sammy took his buddy home, cutting through Spring Lake Park. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, on his way back, he stopped by the little road because he had to use the rest, use the bathroom. So, yeah, he got out of the, the truck and just nowhere. used the bathroom. They do it all the time. Right. Men have that liberty. (laughs) It's much easier for them. Yes. Then he drove to the west side of the park and parked his truck. 
His married girlfriend lived nearby, and he could see her house from where he was parked. He's a stalker. The light went out, meaning that the husband had left for work. So shortly afterward, Sammy went to the house, talked to the woman. However, his intentions didn't work out like he had planned, so he went home and went to bed. Okay, so he didn't get him any. No. So it turns out he was lying about being near Spring Lake but Park But he wasn't lying that about night. killing her. No, he, he was just lying killed. in order to cover up the affair with the right, married woman. Right, He didn't want that man to find out he was sleeping with his right. woman. So police were able to corroborate his story, so he was cleared. So. Thank you. <laughs> so rumors just start flying around town. I mean, just crazy stuff. Everybody's on edge. so you Everybody's know, accusing everybody. everybody. There were rumors that the female victims' bodies had been viciously mutilated. There were rumors that the girls' breasts were chewed up and that their fingers had been gnawed off. Oh, no. Why do people None do that? None of which was true, of course. Why do people do that? That was some teenagers. Yeah, I mean, Probably it's just... just trying to gross somebody <laughs> out. And it became truth because people yeah. believe anything. One account had that the killer was already arrested and in custody. Another, that he had identified himself and confessed. Again, neither one true. There were also rumors that the phantom had struck again, that a third double murder had been committed, and then that a fourth double murder had How been committed. How about y'all let the police do their job? Yeah, so people are just... quit worrying about it. <laughs> so people are just spouting off with no real knowledge, and it's creating just an atmosphere... It's just creating havoc. It is. It's creating havoc and panic in a city, and it's overloading the police's time and working the investigation. Right. They can't do what they need to do to catch this guy so he doesn't do it again because mm-hmm. y'all are freaking out. Go home, lock your doors, and just (laughs) let it go. So they're having to run down any and all leads, no matter how ridiculous they are. They had two women come forward with information that they said was that they had collected from dreams that they had. Another one. How are they gonna go? How are they gonna go check that out? I wanna. I wanna know how. Well, I mean, they had to interview. They got a call, so they had to go interview. Another woman called. You're taking the time that they could be actually looking for the real killer yeah. and r- looking for real evidence by being stupid. Yeah. Just stop. Don't do that, people, ever. Don't do that. Yeah. Um, okay. So, I'm done now. Uh, are you, you sure? Yeah. A man delivering ice at a hotel one Saturday morning found the body of a woman, Mrs. Sue Murray. She was 67 years old and had died from an apparent leap from a fire escape at the hotel. Well, I guess she was scared. Yeah. An investigation revealed that she was in town and apparently despondent because her husband was being treated for a stroke. Now, even this event turned into a rumor that she had jumped out of the hotel window, falling right at Lone Wolf Gonzalez's feet as he started out of the hotel's lobby's door. I'm going to need somebody to do a movie on this. <laughs> they did a movie on this, did which they? we will talk about later. Did of they course. add that part into the movie? <laughs> because even though it's not true, that part needs to be in the movie. Well, I mean, for starters, it wasn't even the same hotel that Gonzalez was staying at. doesn't matter. That part needs to be in the movie, because I can just see... Him walking out the door and this body but, falling at his feet. And no. just looking there down was a, like, And then there was another version where he had actually caught her in his arms when he was coming out of Well, then she of, wouldn't be dead, <laughs> exactly. would she? Dumbasses. He 
Don't. We didn't think about that. So my point in telling all this is that the rumors are becoming more and more ridiculous, and they're taking up more and more of the authorities' time and resources. And that's why I said what I said. Don't do that. Just just don't. It's stupid. Then two weeks after the Martin Booker murders, Ruth Brian Gabor, a reporter at the Texarkana Gazette, she received a phone call. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The man suggested he was the Phantom. I'm the Phantom. That's probably exactly how he said it. That that was actually a recording from the actual phone call. <laughs> I keep, you know, you're talking about all this mass hysteria from these rumors, and the first thing that popped in my head was the Salem witch trials. Yes, people, yes. stop and think about yes. when you want to when you're going through something like that. Stop and think about what those people did. Yeah, just calm and down it was a all because of mass hysteria. Just calm down a minute. Just calm down. <laughs> Breathe. Now, the man on the phone didn't say much. He didn't make any threats. He predicted another weekend crime at the three-week mark, which everybody was because those those are the first two murders. All of them happened three weeks apart, so that was what everybody was expecting. I will soon be killing more. (laughs) Okay, clip done. He suggested they meet at a specific location. He gave no hint of his identity, and he abruptly hung up. So she tells her boss, Cal Sutton, that this guy wants to meet. And he's like, well, no fucking way. You're not going For to real? meet. No. <laughs> You're not going to meet some strange man. <laughs> Just no. called you up on the phone. <laughs> that never ends well. <laughs> Jesus, people. He's, he's like, fuck no. And what is so sad is people still do that today. Well, they want to meet. <laughs> Don't know. Now, other reporters also received strange calls. And they had all chalked it up to be a hoax or a practical joke. Police then received a tip that a man had tried to sell a saxophone to a music store in Corpus Christi, Texas, on April the 20th, six days after the Spring Lake Park murders. It had, that one little kid who went and got <laughs> the VIN number. The, yeah, the serial number. It had, been, it had taken a while for the Texarkana police to get this report, but it finally reached Texarkana on April the 29th. And as we all know and remember from last episode, Betty Jo Booker's saxophone was missing from the murder scene. Yep. Witnesses said the man had walked into the store and asked an employee if she wanted to buy, quote, an Alto Bundy saxophone. That's kind of specific. He didn't have the saxophone with him, but described it to her. She said that she would have to talk to the manager. Then the man said, quote, what do you have to talk to him about it for? You work here, don't you? Because I don't buy things <laughs> with other people's money. Yeah. Even though that would be nice. Yeah. If y'all just want to send me money to go shop on Amazon, <laughs> I have got to stay off of Amazon. Jeez. Anyway. So she noticed that he had begun behaving extremely nervous. And when she tried to call the manager, the man abruptly left, disappearing down the street. So. <laughs> <laughs> now. The only place I found this guy's actual name was in FBI reports that were published on the FBI website. And they identified the man as Charles Wesley Varble. He was later arrested at a waterfront hotel after he bought a forty-five caliber revolver at a pawn shop. And when blood, they found bloody clothing that turned up during his arrest. It was in a bag that he had. Oh, I cut myself shaving. Yeah, so he became a definite suspect yeah, in the Booker Martin case. That's like the best evidence they've got, even so if far, it's yeah. not. <laughs> but this is, this is real. This, this is a real is like lead. Real evidence. Yeah, this is a real lead. 
So the police brought brought in the saleswoman to identify him, which she did. However, police didn't find a saxophone. When he was questioned about the bloody clothing, Varble told police that he had gotten in a fight at a, in a bar with a guy and that the guy he was fighting had cut him on the forehead. And that's how his clothes got bloody. No. Now, Captain Gonzalez sent Ranger Joe Thompson to Corpus Christi on Tuesday, April 30th to check this out. But the arrest failed to yield much, and the case against Farble grew weaker. Gonzalez told reporters, quote, Everything the man tells us is being checked and double-checked, and everything he has told us this, thus far has been found to be true. He has answered all of our questions without hesitancy, and we are making every effort to find out if he is telling the truth or is c- covering up. But y'all didn't make him do a lie detector <laughs> test three times. Oh. We are convinced that thus far the man has told the truth, unquote. Now, going back to what you just said, I think that was Sheriff um, Presley doing the lie detector on that guy. And I honestly think the reason that he gave him so many lie detector tests was I think Presley believed him from the beginning. And he kept trying to get one that he could pass to clear him. So okay, that, but if you're going to do a lie detector on all the rest of them, why just assume this guy's innocent? I'm not saying he's not Well, they not may have. Innocent. I don't know that they didn't. Okay. Now, by Thursday night, May the 2nd, a thorough investigation of Claude Varble ended in what officers termed, quote, a complete washout, unquote. So it went nowhere. Yeah, Varble's story was found to be completely true. Though he had no saxophone, and officers never revealed why he had tried to sell one. They, now, they may have crazy. that information, and we don't. Gonzalez, of course, was the first to announce they had cleared Varble of being the phantom. Of course. He got always, in front of the he's camera. He's always the first again. with the mic. Now, with Varble being cleared, residents of Texarkana just grew more apprehensive because they were, they were thinking that this had to be the guy. And as the three-week interval between killings approached, they gave you more apprehensive. The Phantom had struck in the early Sunday mornings of March 24th and April 14th, exactly three weeks apart. Mm -hmm. And if the pattern continued, that meant the next attack would occur the weekend of Saturday, May the 4th, or Sunday, May the 5th. And so the countdown began. Five. Four. Now, Virgil and Katie Starks, they had grown up together and had known each other all their lives. Aww. He was only a few min- months older than her. A few minutes. A few months. Excuse me. Both were born in 1909. Walter Virgil Starks on April the 3rd and Catherine Isla Strickland six months later on September 25th. They went to school together and their families owned nearby farms in Bowie County. Virgil's father, Jack Starks, moved his family to Arkansas in the late 1920s. And at the time of the 1930 census, Virgil was living with his parents on the farm in Homan, and Katie still lived in Bowie County. Okay. Now, on March 2nd, 1932, Virgil and Katie, each 22 years old, they married in Miller County, Arkansas. Okay. It was the second union of their families. Charlie Starks, who was Virgil's older brother, and Gertie Strickland, who was Katie's older sister, had married earlier. Oh, so that isn't that sweet. That's sweet. Well, I mean, neither one of them were related. So, nope. I mean, it's perfectly. Well, that's not their, their children will be double cousins. <laughs> but hey, it's not incest, people. No, it's not. <laughs> 
In March of 1946, Virgil and Katie celebrated their 14th wedding anniversary. Oh, that's so sweet. Now, they were childless and lived on a comfortable farm in the home and community of Miller County, Arkansas. Okay. About 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. Okay. They lived right on U.S. Highway 67, which was a major highway connecting Texarkana and Little Rock. Okay. They had lived there about five years, and Charlie and Gertie Starks had a farm across the road from Virgil and Katie. That's sweet, too. They're all all right there together. It's going to make me cry. (laughs) Now, Virgil kept busy on their 500-acre farm and in his welding shop. He had like a little welding business. Well, he had like a little business on the side where he did welding for people. Okay. And Katie was always busy in the house and working in the yard, something, you know, just See, doing farm stuff. that's my dream stuff. job, stay just at home mom. Stuff. Well, she wasn't a mom. She just... I don't want to be a mom, but I'd like to stay at <laughs> so home. So you just want to be Katie. Stark. I just want to stay at home. Gotcha. At a time when few rural families had electricity, the Starks' home did, and they had another... R- they rural. was uptown because yeah. they didn't have kids, so, so, so they, they didn't could have afford to spend stuff. all that money on them kids. <laughs> See, people... I love kids, but they're expensive. <laughs> they show off. Who are you telling? I got two of them little things. I know. They're expensive. They had another rural rarity for the time, a telephone. Oh, my Lord. See, they were up town. And they were, I thought, I just wanted to say this because I found it and I thought it was interesting. They were listed in the Texarkana phone directory as 5016-W. That was oh, their phone number. That's so cool. <laughs> Takes me back to Mayberry days. Yep. I, I wonder if I wonder if their operator's name was Sarah. I could look that up <laughs> in historical <laughs> records. Okay, you do that. The first telephone operator in <laughs> where Holman, Arkansas. Yes. Okay. Their white frame farmhouse sat about a hundred feet off of the highway, and though it sat off the highway, one of the one side of the house was in full view of anyone driving by. Right. And as you entered the front of the house, the entrance opened to the living area on the left and a bedroom on the right. Okay. The kitchen and dining area were at the back of the house. Now, why did they build houses like that back then? That's just how they were. It's like this big hall with rooms off to the side. Well, no, not this one. It was, it just, it so opened So it actually up. opened into yes, the living room. Yes, it was room. opening into the living room. Okay, okay. Now, there was a middle room. With an oak-paneled sitting area that had, like, an easy chair and the radio and the telephone in that uh, little area. They had a radio, too? Yeah. Oh, my God. Heck, yeah. These people were uptown. So, they had, like, a the living room, and then in the middle of the house was their little sitting room, and then the kitchen and all in the back. I guarantee you that everybody on Saturday nights was at their house. <laughs> How much well, you want I think every, by 1946, pretty much everybody had a radio. They just didn't have telephone Not electricity. Everybody. Not everybody. So, a shop in which Virgil kept his welding equipment and other tools was nearby. The shop was a frame building with a roof and dirt floor with, do- with a door on hinges. And there was a sign that read, Virgil Stark's Electric Acetylene Welding Work Guaranteed. <laughs> So. He had to put that electric in there, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I got electricity, y'all don't. I'm, I'm an electric welder. You I, I, don't. I'm, I'm the shit. You don't. I got a telephone, too, if y'all need to make a call yeah. while you're here. I've got a phone. I've got an electric welder. I'm the you're shit. You're not me. You're not me. You wish you were, but, but you're, you're not. not. 
Now, Friday, May 3rd, was another long day for Virgil. And by the end of the day, his back was giving him fits again. I imagine it was. Well, he just had back problems, so. I know how that feels, dude. Oh, Lord. Now, while Katie put away the supper dishes, Virgil sat in his easy chair in the room in the southwest corner of the house, a heating pad on his sore back. He had a heating pad, too? Mm -hmm. Not just a hot water bottle? Nope, it was a heating pad. Oh, my It was Lord. electric. Well, and I know it was electric because of what... Uh, everybody wanted to be these people. Yeah, these people then. were the shit. They okay. were the shit. So he had a heating pad on his back, and was listening to the radio and reading the Texarkana Gazette newspaper. And he got a subscription to the newspaper. Mm-hmm. It was dark outside, and behind his chair, the window shade was halfway down, covering the upper portion of the window with a section of the curtain draped to one side. Okay. Now, shrubbery outside reached up to the bottom of the window sill, so it was high shrubbery. Okay. And like everyone else, Virgil and Katie had followed news of the Phantom shootings, of course. Well, who have, everybody in the country probably yeah. did at that point. The Texas cases had been in isolated lovers' lanes, but rural Arkansas still felt anxiety over the murders. And the case was of more than casual interest to the Starks because they had lived in Bowie County and still had a lot of friends and relatives there. Well, and not only that, I mean, any rural area mm-hmm. where there's not a lot around... Yeah. Could be targets. Yeah. And they were also really good friends with Bill Presley, who was sheriff at the time and was investigating the crime. So, you know, their interest was increased they for that reason. They knew everything. Well, they didn't know everything, I'm but they were playing. just... But, they um, were the shits. Yeah. They knew everything. <laughs> I I, Sorry, I forgot. They You're were right. the shits. Now, well before 9 o'clock, Arkansas State Troopers Max Tackett and Charlie Boyd they drove their 1941 Ford State Police Patrol car by the Starks house on their way from Texarkana to Hope, Arkansas, which is where the district headquarters for the state police were. They were um, hurrying to turn in their April expense accounts by 10 p.m. or they would not be reimbursed. <laughs> so they were hauling They was in a hurry. They were trying to get to Hope. I wonder where that, that's where most of y'all are going in such a hurry, <laughs> isn't it? It's... I have figured it out. When you see them flying by. When you see them flying trying, by. They're trying to get their expense reports turned in on That time. is what you're doing. Yep. Now, there was not much traffic as they drove along two-lane Highway 67. And miles out, a few miles out of Texarkana, Tackett noted an old model car parked across the railroad track off a dirt road. Oh, no. This no. this was near a road leading to a large stretch of timber called the Big Woods. Nothing ever, nothing good ever happens in the Big Woods. Um, <laughs> y'all are original. It's Big Woods. The Big Woods. It's the where big y'all woods. going? Oh, we're going up to the Big Woods. <laughs> What's going? I I don't even want to know what happens in the Big Woods. No, you don't. <laughs> I don't want to Because know. What, stay, what happens in the big woods stays in the, stay big, in the big woods. Needs to stay in the big woods. Now, patrons of boot, bootleggers at times would park there in this go. area <laughs> waiting to, for a delivery of moonshine. Uh, they weren't waiting for a delivery. Well, I mean, they were waiting for the people to come out of the big woods with their, what they had ordered, what they yeah, had Yeah, that's why you don't want to go in the big woods. Yeah. It was situated on their right as they drove north, maybe a thousand feet past the Starks' house on the left. Okay. The car was parked parallel to the railroad track, and it was headed north as if it had come from Texarkana. And that was pretty much really all they could tell about it in the dark. 
Now, ordinarily, they would have stopped and investigated, but... but they had to get their expense report. <laughs> right. They because were in- <laughs> people being murdered is less important than them getting reimbursed. Well, uh, now, to their credit, they didn't assume that it was somebody. They assumed it was somebody buying moonshine. At so that it point, wasn't they, going to be at, a big deal. At that deal. point, though, when you've got three double... Well, t- two double murders. Well, they're in Arkansas. All that had happened in Texas. It doesn't matter. Well, I'm just saying. Anybody that- within... Any kind of radius that's fairly close should have been like, okay, wait a minute. What if this is this guy? Well, I mean, you, that wasn't what they were thinking. No, because they wanted their money. So, like, well, I mean, I would too. Well, I, I would too, I would. but I think that in a case <laughs> like that, they probably would have said, okay, we'll go ahead and give well, it to you. So, anyway, they were still in a hurry to get their expense reports turned in, and they decided that if the car was still sitting there, they would check it out on the way back. Let me guess. It was gone. <laughs> So Virgil was looking repli- to Stark's driveway. <laughs> so Virgil was reclined in his chair, his back to the window. Like I said, he was reading the newspaper and listening to a radio program that he always listened to on Friday nights. The window was closed, but the shade was up as he sat with his back to the window. Now Katie Starks had dressed for bed and lay on their bed in the next room. She called out to Virgil to come to bed. And he said that he would as soon as the story ended. A little later, Katie heard a noise in the backyard. She shouted to Virgil to turn the radio down a little because she heard a noise outside. Virgil didn't respond. Almost simultaneously, Katie heard what sounded like glass breaking. And she thought that Virgil had dropped something. So she gets up out of bed and hurries into the sitting room. Don't go in there. The radio was still playing, and she saw Virgil standing up in front of his chair. Then he immediately fell back and slumped over in his chair. Blood was running down his neck, and a pool of blood had formed on the floor. She saw holes in the window pane, and she rushed up and lifted his head and saw that he was bleeding and lifeless. Immediately, she recognized that he had been shot from outside the window. An intruder wielding a twenty-two automatic weapon standing just outside the window, 18 to 20 inches from the pane, where he could see the back of Virgil's head, had shot twice, pulling the trigger immediately after the first shot. He fired through the screen and the window and pumped two bullets into the back of Virgil's head. Aww. One bullet went through the heating pad, short-circuiting it. She turned and raced to the hand-cranked telephone on the wall. The killer remained just outside the window, making no attempt to flee. And with the light on inside, the killer could see her, but she couldn't see him. And she never got to use the phone. When she reached it, the killer fired two more shots at her head. One bullet entered her cheek beside her nose and emerged from behind the ear. The other shot entered her lower jaw just below the lip. The shots crashed through her teeth, scattering fragments to the floor. She fell to the floor and lay there, stunned, but miraculously still alive. And though she was so seriously wounded and in full view of the killer in the well-lit room, she actually had the presence of mind to drop to the floor, stay there, and play dead so that he might believe he had killed her. Yeah. At that point, you pretty much have to. Yeah. 
Now, as she lay there, she didn't think that he would be able to see her from the outside. And so she got on her hands and knees and inched her way to the back of the house. She crawled until she thought she was out of view from the outside and then went back into the bedroom. She knew that there was a forty-five revolver in one of the dresser drawers, but she wasn't sure exactly where it was. And she figured that it would just be, you know, a real waste of precious time to look for it. So she thought maybe she could find some paper and pen and leave a note telling people what had happened if she didn't survive. Mm. She didn't think she's going to live. Now, after the shooting, after shooting her, the killer ran along the side of the house and around to the rear of the house and bounded up the steps to the porch. Then he entered the screen porch and broke into the house through the kitchen window. At this exact time, she opened the door from the bedroom into the kitchen and heard a noise and realized that someone was trying to come in the back door just off of the kitchen. And just as she entered the kitchen, she heard the man trying to enter the house through the kitchen window and then actually saw him climbing in through the window. All she saw was his leg and his knee, and her thought was that she had to get out of there. Yeah. That she had to go. So she stumbled back into the bedroom, through a little passageway, into another bedroom off of the living room, and then through the living room, got to the front door, and ran out of the house. Bless her heart. Now, her nightgown by this time is just soaked in blood. Well, yeah. She was barefoot and left a bloody trail in the house. She crossed the highway, then the railroad tracks, and she headed straight to her sister and brother-in-law's house, the Allen's house who lived, like I said, almost directly across the highway. Right. Now, the killer had wasted no time in gaining entry to the house. And though his primary goal, it seemed, had become finishing off the only witness, he stopped for a moment before Virgil's body staring down at his handiwork. And they know this because his they had footprints of him just in one Standing spot. there. Then he headed out of the room to the front, The brief, which this brief halt while he's standing there looking at Virgil is may have what allowed Katie, may have given her a few more minutes to get away. Now, Katie reached the Allen house, but no one was home. Oh. She then ran to the home of A.V. Prater, whose house was about 50 yards from the Allen house. She reached the Prater's home, knocked on the door, and called for help. She was bleeding profusely and just feeling weaker and weaker by the Aww. second. Prater came to the door, switched on the light, and luckily he recognized Katie immediately and grabbed his rifle and fired it from the front porch into the air to signal neighbors and maybe right. scare off whoever had done this. Elmer Taylor, another neighbor, heard the shot and rushed to Prater's house. Prater told him to get his car because Mrs. Starks had been shot. And they rushed her to Texarkana to Michael Meager Hospital, just east of the state line. Easing Katie in the front seat and the Praters and their baby in the back, Taylor lost no time in covering the 10 miles. So he was... He was going. He was going. Now, I want to tell you how badass Katie Starks is, okay? That woman, (laughs) bless her heart. This lady, as bad as she's... As bad a shape as she is, as she is in... And everything she'd been through. Katie turned 
to the driver and handed him one of her dislodged gold teeth, which she had spit out and had clutched in her hand during her escape, and gave it to him as payment for taking her to the hospital. <laughs> I think they would have done it for free, though. But is that this is like, here, my teeth are in my hands. Take this for taking me to the hospital. Bless her heart. I know, right? And then... Yeah, so she's a badass is what I'm saying. She was in really bad shape. You think? She had been losing blood the whole time, and several of her lower teeth had been shot out. They drove to the emergency entrance of the hospital where a doctor hurried in, and the bullet striking her right cheek had, like I said, emerged from behind the left ear on the other side. So it went right through her, basically. It went right through her. She's lucky it didn't Mm -hmm. hit that spinal column. The bullet to her jaw had broken her lower jaw and lodged under her tongue. Uh. I mean, it was a miracle that she was still even able to speak or anything. Now, while the doctor was amazed, she hasn't amazed that she had not bled to death. Even more striking was that her pulse was normal, and she showed no evidence at all of any shock. Although she was still in critical condition. But she would survive her injuries. People, that's just proof. If it's not your time to go, you're not going anywhere. You're not anywhere. going. But that's, she, that's a badass right there. And all while her husband's laying dead. Right. With that yeah. man chasing after her. Yeah. Now, troopers. I, it's probably the adrenaline that yeah, got her absolutely, there, though. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. If it hadn't have been for that, she wouldn't yeah. have made it. But, I mean, you guys just still have the wheel to get up off that floor and well, yeah. fight for your life. Oh, yeah. Now, troopers Tackett and Boyd, they had crossed the Red River Bridge and were back in Miller County when the call came in on their radio. They'd already passed the Starks' home about five miles from the Red River Bridge on their way back to Texarkana. And the old model car that they intended to check was gone when they had because come Because it's sitting in the Starks' driveway. <laughs> So Tackett turned the car around in the middle of the highway, and he stomped on the gas. Both men were convinced the driver of the car they had seen had shot the Starks couple, and they would never change their minds about that. Well, because they're ever. right. Now, Tackett and Boyd were the first officers on the scene. The lights were still on in the farmhouse, so they went inside with their guns drawn. Mr. Starks was still slumped over um, in his blood-soaked chair. Uh-huh. The first thing they saw were a blood-stained floor and muddy footprints. Smoke filled the room where Stark's body lay, and Stark's armchair smoldered from fire caused by the short circuit of the electric heating pad. Mm. The victim's blood soaked into the chair and onto the floor. The body, however, was not burned, even though smoke swirled all about the body and from between his legs. But it didn't burn the body. Huh. Within seconds, they ascertained, of course, that Starks was... Uh, he was dead he was beyond he hit help. chair. Yeah. Now, they had to work fast to rope off the house and surrounding area in order to preserve any possible clues. So, they began carefully isolating possible clues in the house by marking them. Yeah. But their efforts were almost for naught. Because minutes later, the house and grounds were were filled with lawmen from both sides of the state line. 
some from as even as far as 30 miles away. So everybody's just wanting to get in on this crime. Why would they go rushing in that house when it's because a crime everybody, scene? Because everybody, because look, everyone raced to the scene as soon as the emergency message went out. Because they, you know, everybody wants to be a part of this. This is a big, everybody's thinking, well, this may have something to do with the phantom murders. So everybody wants to be a part of it instead of worrying about whether or not they're preserving evidence. They're going to catch the guy. Right. I mean, that's, you know, it's just... We've, we've seen people. It, we've seen it so many times. It just—they couldn't control the outsiders, and according to Tackett, the incoming officers quote stomped out all possible evidence unquote. Soon, it would be impossible to preserve any important clues the killer may have left behind, as lawmen essentially got in each other's way. And like I've just said, as in other cases, we have where everyone has wanted to be a part of the investigation at the expense of the evidence being lost or destroyed. I and just they don't, don't get it. I, I don't mean, either, but we've heard it so many times. I mean, it just happened. It doesn't happen so much today, but back then it happened all the time. they were trained back then that you don't just rush into a crime scene because these two guys were trying to mark the right, evidence, so they right. were taught that. right. But you want, but they just wanted to be part of it. I, it you know what? And it's Screw it's, it's got your it's you having your priorities mixed up, basically. I mean, let's want, worry about catching the guy who just killed this man. Whether he's the phantom killer or not, he still killed a man and tried to kill his wife. It's the mentality that you want to be on TV like Lone Wolf Gonzalez. Oh, you know, Lone Wolf. It's just that mentality is what is is what. And I don't, I mean, I don't feel bad about saying it. That's exactly what led to this. Meanwhile, the man who tried, who shot these two people, right? even if he's not the phantom killer. He's still loose. He's still running loose. Yeah. And deserves to be punished, but he can't because y'all destroyed the evidence. Yeah. Now, by the time Miller County Sheriff W.E. L.V. Davis... Chief Deputy Tillman John- and Chief Deputy Till- Tillman Johnson arrived. The Starks Farm was, quote, a three-ring circus. The city police and the FBI were already there, and even neighbors had started pouring into the house. So the police that are there, the FBI, are letting neighbors come into the residence where... A murder and an attempted murder took place where there has to be physical evidence everywhere. Everywhere, because, I mean... You know? So, Johnson would later state, quote, The house was wide open. Soon people were tromping all over. I tried to seal off the scene, but by the end, much had probably been lost. Unquote. And I'm going to stop... Why the, that's, that is the biggest reason right there that we have the problem today of... Different police precincts, like sheriffs or whatever, can only go so far to respond to a call now. Because you can't have every law enforcement yeah. 30 or 50 miles away. Yeah, I mean, away they're just coming there. and they're, That's not even their jurisdiction. They're just coming there because they want to be part of it. Right. And another, th- I'm going to stop right here and tell this story, even though I did not include it in what I was going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I don't remember, I won't, I will say I don't remember if it was Johnson or Tackett. It may have been Tackett. Got a call one night after everything had cleared down. Had, it was a couple of weeks after this, after these, this attack. Right. They got a call from the neighbors that the lights were on in the 
Stark's residence. Well, nobody was supposed to be there because it was a crime scene. Yeah, right? nobody is supposed to so, be there. So, I believe it. I want to say it was Tackett. I'm thinking it was Tackett. Anyway, he and his partner, they rush out there. They, you know, sur- they, they say they've got the house surrounded to come out with your hands up. And guess who walks out? Who? Lone Wolf Gonzalez with a reporter. Because he was, quote, re-enact- reenacting the murder for her and letting her, allowing her to take pictures you can't do that <laughs> in a crime scene. So, I mean, that's just the mentality. Especially on a case that has nothing to do with the reason why you're in the area. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just the mentality here. Now, scurrying about outside, Johnson first sought to cordon off the crime scene with whatever he could find. I mean, I guess they didn't even have crime scene tape because he did locate some telephone wire around the house and pulled it off and stretched it around to try to keep people out of there. Yeah course it didn't work now the sheriff's office left the inside of the house to the fbi agents and to the extent that they could they like y'all investigate that and outside johnson found three empty cartridge holes from a 22 caliber gun okay immediately a blockade was thrown up on u.s highway 67 for several miles in both directions Several men found in the general vicinity were picked up for questioning. If they, if they saw anybody, basically, they were picking well, them yeah, up. Well, yeah, I mean, but I can understand yeah. that. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're saying they're guilty, but they're, right. I get that because they had no clue what's right. going on here. Now, occupants of cars believed to have been in the area at the time of the shootings were also picked up. Neighbors were questioned, but none could offer up a possible motive. No one knew of any enemies that the Starks may have had. There were also some tenants who lived some distance behind the Starks' house. And in each of these two houses, there were two men who worked on nearby farms. And it was the men, along with their families, that lived in these houses. So those men were picked up. Right. And if anyone even faintly qualified as a suspect, like I said, he was picked up and taken in. Because they were trying to just get everybody, round up everybody they could in the area to question them. Now, within hours, deputy arrested a dozen men and took them to jail for safekeeping until they had time to check out their stories. Sheriff Davis headed to the hospital to see if if he could talk with Katie Starks, but she was in surgery. Now, officers inside the house found money in the house that had not been touched and Katie's purse lay on the bed in full view, containing both money and jewels. Nothing seemed to be missing from the house, and there was no evidence of ransacking or burglary. So this Now, this didn't necessarily mean the intruder hadn't intended to rob the house. That may have been his plan, but that plan had gone awry the moment Katie ran to that telephone. Right. Because then he's like, well, she's about to call the police, so... Now, from that point, the killer apparently concentrated his efforts on eliminating her and then on escaping. The thought was that if he had simply wanted to kill Virgil and nothing else, that he had ample time to shoot him and then take off. Yeah. But he had lingered until Katie had appeared. They found what some believed to be the killer's bloody footprints on the linoleum floor. He had gone into the sitting room, apparently inspected Virgil's body, and then stepped into a pool of blood nearby, which was either, I don't know if it was Virgil or Katie's, but one of them. The Texarkana Gazette 
that Starks had been laying, had been reading, it lay on the floor or splattered with blood. Uh-huh. The killers lingering by his victim's body while Katie was fleeing pointed toward his desire to survey what he had done, basically. He wanted to see what he had done. So with him wanting to see what he had done, that just kind of that gives you and a most, I think that he was just there to kill. Yeah, most killers are like that. They're sick individuals. Yeah, I just don't, it just doesn't seem like his intent was to rob. No. Or he would have just got, I mean, he went I don't there, know why he would have killed he, him. But he, I don't know why he would have went in a house where the lights were on and somebody was still up. Yeah. Just, you know, go to the house, go to the house that's dark across the street yeah. where nobody's home. You know, so. But, I mean, unfortunately, because these people are sick, most killers will stop yeah. and just. Well, that, I'm just I'm just saying that that just kind of shows me that this wasn't, yeah, this no. wasn't a robbery or no. anything. He was there to kill. Now, there was some evidence found at the scene. The killer had dropped a red flashlight outside in the hedge beneath the window where, where he shot Virgil. It was a two-cell light with a black barrel red-rimmed around the glass. Okay. The 22 bullets and shells were collected, and the cases apparently came from an automatic or semi-automatic weapon because of the closeness of the holes in the window. And it was believed to be an old model 22 Colt Woodsman. Okay. The gun was unlikely to have been a pump or a bolt-action rifle which would have created a different shot pattern. Mm-hmm. And the way that what they're saying is that it was probably an automatic because it appeared that the shots were too close together in the right. window for him to have to pump or do and then take, re-aim and, because it seemed the shots came Right, back, he just aimed once yeah. and pulled the trigger. Right, twice, right. Now, the bloody footprints only provided an approximate clue but helped track the killer's steps. Officers immediate Officers immediately, of course, started asking, hey... Is this tied to the killings in Texas? Is this the phantom? Oh, yeah. I mean. Now, Miller County Sheriff Davis pointed out that a different gun and different caliber was used, but he didn't close the door on the possibility. He was just pointing out, hey, this is a different caliber gun. It's a different gun. It may not be the same person. Mm-hmm. The flashlight was turned over to the FBI agents because they wanted them to look for fingerprints. They weren't thinking that... The, they were thinking the killer probably used gloves and they weren't expecting to find fingerprints on the actual flashlight, but they thought, well, it might be on the battery. Right. Maybe he didn't think to use gloves when he was putting in the battery or something. So, the tracks left by the killer seemed to be about a size 10. And it, they had a retouched shoe sole, which apparently had been loose, and the corner of the cut-off sole had been folded back, leaving a triangular imprint. So okay. it was kind of a distinct footprint. Yeah. Footprints appeared to have gone out the front door and down to the edge of the highway. He apparently had run about 200 yards along the highway and then crossed to the other side and continued running beside the railroad tracks about a quarter mile away where Tackett and Boyd had spotted the parked car. Now, making a plaster cast of the track in the house was pretty much out of the question because it's on a flat surface Mm -hmm. and it's not very 
But you can take well, pictures. Well, what they did is they just cut that portion of the linoleum, the linoleum or you out. Or just cut the floor out. And took it with them. <laughs> Whatever. Now, there were so, but the problem with that was there were so many people tracking in and out of the house that some wondered if that track even belonged to the killer or not. That's true. They weren't, they, there's no way they could be sure. This is why you don't do that, people. Yep. Yep. Um, bloodhounds were brought in to try to track the killer. But so many people had been in and out of that house till. Yeah, that was my next sentence. But by the time the bloodhounds arrived on the scene, a multitude of tracks and scents complicated their work. Exactly. Men were milling around inside and outside of the house. So they got a lot. It was. They got a lot of different scents and didn't know which one to follow. Now, the dogs did pick up a scent and weren't able to track it a little piece. Um, The kill and like. The only way they might could have gotten around that was to let them sniff the flashlight. True. But then but again, then again, it it's, might as plastic. But if people had been walking all over his where he had walked anyway. It's going to still going to be hard for them to pick up. But just they could his they scent. could they could pick it up if they had just his scent to sniff. The problem well, was they were they, able. They couldn't pick just his scent out because of so many people. Well, they were able to pick up a scent, and they followed it. Um, Apparently, it crossed over the highway, gone down the railroad track, and escaped probably by a car that he had parked nearby. You know, that car that you two saw when you were too worried about your... (laughs) And this scenario did coincide with Tackett's belief that the parked car he and Boyd seen was the gunman's. So, I think that we can all say that that was probably the killer's car. Yeah, I think. So, a contingent of state police supervisors, they come in, and they're... Um, going to do a report on the gunshot. So they're detailing the precise measurements of the gunshot, citing distances from the ground to the window, how far apart the bullet holes were in the window. And what they gathered was apparent that uh, the gunman had not changed his stance outside, judging from the horizontal closeness of the two sets of bullet holes, which is like what right. we were just talking about. The lower holes through which Virgil had been shot were 32 inches from the floor. The upper holes through which Katie was shot were 42 inches from the floor. Okay. So, I'm guessing he had stood up, I guess, that he was probably knelt or either crouched. Or he he had had to move up. He had the gun pointed down a little bit to shoot Virgil. Yeah. And then just brought it up and turned it a little bit to shoot the policeman extricated one bullet from the north wall 56 inches from the floor. So it was obvious that was in an upward trajectory. Because 42 inches was the height that the, bullet top, the highest through. bullet went in. And if this was, and if the bullet was found, unless it was deflected by something. It could have been. Like a human jaw. Yeah. Now... From the numbers, when you're looking at all this, it could be seen how Katie had saved her life by dropping to the floor where the assassin could not get a third shot or a fourth shot in her. Mm-hmm. And in addition to the bloody footprint found on the kitchen floor, a similar footprint was found near the driveway entrance to the yard about 50 yards from the corner of the house. Four tracks were lifted between a cottonwood tree and a willow tree. So they've got you know, quite a bit of footprints that they think belong to the killer. They also found footprints 
near Stark's welding sign, suggesting the killer had gone maybe first to the shop looking for something to steal before walking toward the house. So casts were made of those prints. But it was problematic because of the indistinct condition of the tracks, whether they could be used to accurately match a shoe or boot, because they weren't very... It had been raining a lot, and it was in mud, so they weren't very distinct footprints. Right. Now, tire tracks across the highway and the railroad track where Tackett and Boyd had spotted that car Mm -hmm. showed that a car had turned around at that point in order to get back onto the highway. Okay. But it was not possible to tell which direction the car had taken, had turned on the highway. So they don't know if it went toward Texarkana or toward Little Rock. They don't know. Right. A fence almost directly across the highway from where the car had been parked divided Stark's land from his neighbors. And it was about a thousand feet from the fence to the house. Their house. Okay. And Johnson, he strode this fence line trying to see if he had... um, could see any prints or anything or any evidence there and there was a portion that had been plowed and wet it was wet from the rain right so i'm guessing maybe they were having a little garden there or something now johnson checked the plowed ground looking for any prints and about a hundred feet from the highway he found footprints crossing over the plowed field in the direction of the house so he went from his car across the field up to the shop between those trees. Yes. So he Crossed, was trying to hide. Yeah, he was trying to not to be seen on the highway is yeah. what it was. He can walk down that fence line. Over. He was probably already out of the car when those two oh, absolutely. troopers I, went I, I by the first so. time. I would think so. He'd come directly from across the highway where Tackett and Boyd had seen the parked car. He had taken that route, like I said, not to, so that he wouldn't be seen from the highway. And recent plowing along with the rain had left the soil soft, so none of the prints were really ideal, Uh like I said, but there was one that was a little better than the others. Okay. However, it was still going to be difficult to match anything to it. It wasn't really distinct. Right. But Johnson was sure that he had found the path that the killer had taken oh yeah now officers also found several cigarette butts near where the suspicious car had been parked indicating that if the butts had been left by the killer he had smoked them while waiting to walk across the highway Mm -hmm. so they're thinking well maybe he sat here waiting on it to get dark completely dark or you know whatever but i mean it's also possible that those butts were left weren't left by the killer. Well, yeah. I mean, they. who knows? Right. Now, as with the previous murders, there was no clear motive. And none of the evidence found yielded any in- useful information. The flashlight had no fingerprints. The twenty two caliber gun that killed Virgil Starks was an automatic or semi-automatic weapon. But the bullets were in too rough a condition for them to concretely determine if they came from a rifle or a pistol. So they don't even right. know what type of gun they're looking for. They put pictures of the flashlight in newspapers across the nation, but nothing came of that either. And they they did find that there was a hardware store in town that sold that specific flashlight. And as it turns out, there weren't that many sold in that area. But then again, they didn't have records of who bought them. You know right. I mean? It's not like anybody had a, would have a credit card record or something of who purchased them. Right. 
Now, several distinct features of the Starks case argued for it being the phantom killer also. You know, being a continuation of these serial killings rather than a robbery, a grudge slaying, or some kind of crime of passion. Mm Because there were rumors that got out about this, too, that it was... You know, somebody Let holding the grudge that, that Virgil was having off. an affair or something like that. None of which turned out to be true. Well, of but course. Now, the similarities that linked, that appeared to link the cases were it was couples as victims. Mm-hmm. They killed or disabled the male first. Right. Two shots in at each victim. Now, the exception to that was Paul Martin. But, you know, because he had four gunshots. But it looked like that he had actually been shot two at a time. Like, he was the first two he was shot with. Right. Then it appeared that the killer realized that he still wasn't dead and shot him two more times. Right. So it's two shots, two shots, two shots into each victim. Mm-hmm. An automatic weapon was used. Now, granted, it was not the same caliber, but it was still an automatic. They were, he picked vulnerable victims at night. Mm-hmm. He used a flashlight in at least two and possibly all of the cases, but they know at least two. Right. We know that the same thirty-two automatic killed the previous four victims. Right. Well, we know yeah. three yeah. because they didn't test, Take, test the fourth, fourth one. one. But they're, we're assuming that the, thir- the same thirty-two automatic killed the Maybe previous four victims. Maybe it's the victims. only one that had the twenty-twos in it. <laughs> right. Now, a twenty-two automatic rifle or pistol was used in the Starks case. But knowing that the police were looking for a thirty-two automatic, he may have changed guns because a twenty-two rifle or pistol wasn't suspicious at all. Everybody has a ever had a twenty-two. Yeah. That was the most, you know, it's still the most common. Common brawl, right? Now, arguments seeking to derail the one killer theory pointed out that, of course, a different weapon was used in the Stark slings. That the victims were at home in a house and not in the secluded but, lover's lane. But they were still in a secluded right. area. And that the victims were older. But, like we just said, he obviously could have changed his weapon to a more common, less conspicuous caliber. Uh-huh. Also, by then, he had a more restricted cast of potential victims to choose from because... Where else was he going to find somebody but in their home? Because everybody, nobody was hanging out at the lover's lanes right. anymore. He screwed himself on right. that. <laughs> they were being watched. Teenage, you knew teenagers weren't hanging out there anymore. Thousands of people were just in their homes with the doors locked. And, you know, lover's lanes were too hot to explore because they were full of cops at this time. Right. He had to... Pick a different place to hunt his prey, essentially. Mm-hmm. If the killer was a different one, settling that may have been settling a grudge against Starks, why did he linger just outside the window after he had shot Starks dead until Katie entered the room? It couldn't have been to eliminate a witness because she had not witnessed the shooting. Right. She was in the bedroom. He didn't. He wouldn't have seen her until she walked right. out. The shooter had not seen her until she entered the room. That's right. He could have shot and ran and escaped before she even came into the room, mm-hmm. if that was his sole purpose. So what had he waited for? Her to come out. Was it just to see what she looked like? 
Now, if that were the reason, wouldn't it be reasonable to assume that if this was somebody with a grudge, he already that he would her. have known both of the Starks and known what she looked like? Yeah. Wouldn't you think? I mean, that oh, would yeah. be reasonable, a reasonable yeah. assumption to make. That's a crock of bull. That's, it wasn't a grudge or anything. Yeah. I think that it's more than obvious that he shot her to keep her from using that telephone. Well, yeah, because he wasn't even trying to shoot her right. yet. Right. Until she went right. for that telephone. Right. He didn't shoot her as soon as she came out. So I don't think he was trying to eliminate her at that point in any way. Not it's at just that point. Not at that point. But if he had been a man who lived in that community, he would have known the Starks had that phone. Yep. Because it was so rare that everybody everybody that, knew they everybody had that telephone. Everybody knew they had that phone. He could have cut the phone line before he even fired the which, gun on Virgil. Which lets you know that he wasn't from mm-hmm. that area. Yeah, the fact that he did not, to me, proves that he didn't know about that phone and therefore didn't know the Starks. Everyone in that community knew they had that telephone. Oh, yeah. But a stranger would not have known no. that. No. They, he wouldn't have probably. It was so rare at that point. He wouldn't have even guessed that they would have had one. No, out in the middle of nowadays, out, out nowadays, in rural area like that. Nowadays, if somebody's going to go into a house, that'd be one of the first things right. they look for. Right. But back then, because it was such a rarity. Right. I mean, you then didn't we, we, we wouldn't into, have assumed that they would have had one. Right. You didn't go into a house looking for a telephone. Right. Now they thoroughly checked out every suspect, and while there was isn't anything that directly ties the attacks of the Starks to the other killings. I think it's more than possible that the Texas Phantom was also the Arkansas killer. Oh, yeah. Now, the murder of Virgil Starks and attempted murder of Katie Starks marked the last of the murders attributed to the Texarkana Phantom killer. They may have been the last. They may not have been. But we will get to that. They were the last in that area. Right, but we'll talk about that in our next episode. But right now, I want to go into talking about a little, a few suspects, a few more suspects. Oh, Lord, I'm confused. Okay. (laughs) What are you confused about? We've had so many suspects. I'm just confused. Okay. So, who the heck was the Texas, was the Texarkana Phantom Killer? Who was it? Uh, It was a guy (laughs) who had a gun. Yep. You're exactly who, right. Who liked to kill couples. You're right. So and he would, with you. He, he would kill the man first mm-hmm. and then go rape, try to rape the woman or rape her and then kill her. Okay. That's all I know. All right. Well, the answer. The, and he has blue eyes. The short answer to this is we still don't know the answer to that. <laughs> but, don't ask me how I know he has blue eyes, but he has blue eyes. But they did give some suspects. They did have some suspects that came out of the investigation. Now, on Wednesday, May the 8th, it was announced that an escaped German prisoner of war was considered a suspect. He was described as a stocky 24-year-old weighing 187 pounds with brown hair and blue eyes. The POW had stolen a car in Mount Ida, Arkansas, and attempted to buy ammunition in several eastern Oklahoma towns. Meanwhile, late at night on Tuesday, May 7th, a 45-year-old black man named Herbert Thomas was flagged down by a hitchhiker in Kilgore, Texas. Okay. The hitchhiker offered him $5 and said that he needed a ride to Henderson because his mother was seriously ill. Now, Thomas said that 
Of course, he would not normally have given the man a ride, but he felt that he needed to. This was before the movie. Yeah, came because out. of the sad story. Because you know this guy's story. Like I gotta get home and see my mom. Yeah, they had obviously not seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right, this was before the movie yeah. came out, and this was Texas too. So, right, but you know they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know. When they it's ne- a white farmhouse. <laughs> right. Now, when they neared Henderson, the hitchhiker pulled out a pistol and told Thomas to keep driving or he would kill him like he killed the five people in Texarkana. He actually mentioned... Five people? Oh, that's right, because she didn't get killed. She didn't die. Right. And he actually mentioned Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker by name, but their names were everywhere in the newspapers. I was fixing to say they were everywhere. Yeah. The man told Thomas that he was not done killing and that he was going to return to Texarkana to kill Martin's father. But he obviously didn't know what he's talking about because Martin's father was already dead. Well, he just wanted to be sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had been dead for several years. Well, he still, he just, he wanted to be sure. <laughs> the man then ordered Thomas to turn around in Lufkin and drive him back to Kilgore and threatened that if Thomas followed him, he would trail and kill Thomas. The man then stole back the $5 he had given Thomas, as a, as well as an additional $3. You could have at least let him keep the $8, <laughs> dude. I mean, shit. Now, Thomas drove back to Kilgore and reported the incident to the police. He described the man as being 5, eight, five feet 8 inches tall, about 130 pounds, approximately 27 or 28 years old, with red hair and wearing khaki trousers and a GI jacket. Definitely not from Texas. Yeah. (laughs) During that same night in Lufkin, a local resident named Robert Atkinson spotted a peeping Tom in his window. Oh. Atkinson grabbed a flashlight and chased after the man, but he escaped. Atkinson, not done yet, he got in his car and went looking for the guy. Yep. Because this is Texas. This is Texas. (laughs) Atkinson caught the man that he believed was the peeping Tom. But the man convinced Atkinson that he was not the window peeper and that he had just taken his girlfriend home. So Atkinson, I guess, believed him and let the guy go. You know that was the guy. But he later heard the story about Thomas and decided to notify the police about the experience. Atkinson described the man he saw as five feet nine inches tall, wearing khakis, and had hair that could have been dark red. Yep, not from Texas. Now Gonzalez stated, "Quote when he was giving of one course. of his, the, when he was giving one of his press conferences, quote, we don't believe that the man who killed the five people here in the past six weeks would boast about his crimes. Yes, he would, and then let the Negro go." I mean, okay, Negro. first of all, yes, he would boast that's about his crimes. That's a quote. That's not my words. He would boast about his crimes because, hello, that's what they do. Yeah. They want to be known, want it to be known that they do this stuff. Yeah. That's what they do. <laughs> now, it's I, it's unsure whether the man in each instance was the same man, but it is suspected that it was the same man in each of these three incidences. Well, I mean, that's kind of... I'm telling you, he would stand out in Texas like... <laughs> <laughs> so the police kept searching for the POW, but they were never able to find or question him. So we don't know what happened to this guy. I don't even know why he was a suspect to begin with. 
I'm not. Other I, than he was an out, he was either. he was German and I, from I, out of town I'm, and not Texan. Well, at that time, Germans were not <laughs> well liked people. So, you know, I'm just saying that's that's the only reason I can find. But I'm not happy with Gonzalez anyway. I mean, you go to another state where you have no jurisdiction, walk into a crime scene yeah. just because a reporter wants pictures. Right? Yeah, that pissed me off. He could have been. I, I wasn't I, even going to put that in. I didn't put it in my story that I wrote. But I, I just think he should have been up. arrested for that. Yeah. Honestly, because they could have arrested him in Arkansas. He's a Texas Ranger, not an Arkansas Ranger. (laughs) Now, on Friday, May the 10th, in Atoka, Oklahoma, a man walked up to a woman's house and opened her screen door. He asked... (laughs) Candy Graham. Candy Graham. (laughs) Who is it? Now, Mrs. Harmon was the lady, and he asked her if he could have some turpentine, some food, and some money. What the (laughs) fuck? Those are the three things well, now, that turpen- he wanted. Okay, money I could see you'd need to buy more food or gas. The food, okay, you can't go without eating. The turpentine, maybe he like, does get stains out. Maybe. Now, Mrs. Harmon told the man that she had very little turpentine, so she didn't have any turpentine to spare. You gotta and had no them. money or food. The man then grabbed Mrs. Harmon by the hair and dragged her out onto the porch. He told her that he might as well kill her because he had already killed three or four people and that he was going to rape her. He then heard a horse galloping towards them and told her, quote, There comes a man on a horse. If you report this to officers, I'll come back and kill you. No, you won't. Unquote. Now, after the man ran off, the woman took her child with her to a neighbor's house further up the street and called the police. So they had a phone, too. Was that the Stark's house before they <laughs> No, got this was okay. in Oklahoma. Oh, okay, that's right. This was in Oklahoma. Yeah. Now, soon after she reported this, a widespread search for the man, you know, including, it included 20 officers and 160 residents. So they're trying to find this guy. Funny how the residents are more interested in finding it than the officers. Well, I think that that's the only that's the officers they had. Oh, okay. Now, she described the attacker as a white man, about 5'9 to 5'10, 40 to 45 years Let old. Let me guess. Dark red hair. <laughs> anyway, 40 to 45 years old, about 150 to 155 pounds with dark hair who was badly in need of a shave. He gained some weight, didn't he? Well, I just don't think it's the same person. He carried an open 5-inch bladed pocket knife and was wearing gloves, a faded worn blue shirt khakis, and an old, dirty, dark-colored floppy hat. Now, police arrested a suspect that closely matched the description. The suspect had the same type of gloves that Mrs. Harmon described as being worn by her attacker. Yeah. The man was also wearing blue clothes and khakis. However, the pocket knife that he found, that that he had on him, the blade was a lot shorter than five inches. But, I mean, I, I mean, could, if, if, you if she's a, freaking out, yeah. it's, it may look bigger than it actually well, was. Well, when it's coming at you and yeah. it's telling you you're going to kill you, that thing looks like a sword. I mean, I'm yeah. telling you. And this man was also cleanly shaven. So, after investigating the suspect, officers did not believe that this man was the Phantom. And according to the man's story, he'd been bumming around the country, so... He could not have been in Texarkana at the time Virgil Starks was killed. Well, no, he could have. I mean, he could have been lying. But I mean, you know. he could have. The man said that he had left Pine Bluff in the latter part of April and went to Colorado. Now, officers stated that they were going to thoroughly check his story 
And I guess they did because we don't hear anything else about this guy. So I'm guessing that he was either cleared or they just followed up on their assumption that they didn't think that it was the Phantom Killer. What if it was him? I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell you any more else about it. That's all I've got. (laughs) Okay. Now, on Thursday, May 23rd, 1946, a 20-year-old ex-Army machine gunner by the name of Ralph B. Bowman told Los Angeles police that he thought he might have been the Phantom. How do you think you might be a killer? (laughs) Quote, I've been in a coma running from something, maybe murder. I want to clear it up. If I didn't kill five people in Texarkana, I want to settle down and be a stuntman in Hollywood. I'm happiest when I'm living in danger. Unquote. (laughs) The fuck? (laughs) Dude. Dude. Now, previously, he had gone to the Los Angeles Examiner and told a reporter, quote, I want to sell you some murder information. I know who and where the Texarkana killer is. Give me $5 and let me have a half-hour start, and I'll put the information in a sealed envelope, unquote. So the recorder, reporter, of course, called the police after reading the following. This was the, They made the deal, and this was what the note said. Quote, On a certain day in March, I was in a Texarkana theater watching a, a news picture of war. When a party of persons acted wise and said they were overacting, it kind of got me. I followed them home. I killed them within a period of three days. Unquote. Police arrested the redhead at a downtown shooting gallery. He had just shot his 23rd bullseye in a row from a 22 caliber rifle. Bowman said, quote, I'm my own suspect. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think this guy's the killer. I don't I know what that means. he does need some help. I don't know what that means. <laughs> He claimed to have been in a coma for several weeks. He said that he woke up from the coma on May the 3rd with his rifle missing and heard about a suspect matching his description, which was the guy we were talking about previously. He then hitchhiked to Los Angeles feeling like he was running for murder. Bowman said that he was discharged in 1945 for being a psychoneurotic. You think? The chief of police said, quote, I feel that the man is certainly a mental case. It's very professional. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, but there's no easy way to put that. I mean, the Texarkana killings could have been the work of a mental case. And as far as we know, this man could have done it. But we have absolutely no facts. They will have to be developed if they exist, unquote. Gonzalez stated that several parts of the man's story had little basis in fact. Gonzalez just needs to go away. So, I don't know. That man, um, he did not, they cleared him anyway, and he was not considered a serious suspect. He was considered a man with emotional and mental disorders well, yeah. and was not taken seriously. A lot of people with mental disorders will do that. They'll see a case like in the newspapers and stuff like that, and they'll go to the police swearing that they're the killer, even though they were nowhere in the area when it happened. Right. Which, funny you should mention that, because we're about to talk about a couple of those guys. (laughs) The Shreveport police then arrested a man for confessing to the crimes. The man was arrested at a bar after unknowingly telling his story to a news reporter. (laughs) 
The reporter promised the man a fifth of whiskey if he would tell all he knew. So, Chief Deputy Johnson, he gets sent to Louisiana to find out what's going on. What's this, what's this guy's does, story? Because, you know, a <laughs> guy in a bar is always trustworthy. So, he arrived from Texarkana to question the man, and he immediately recognized the man as a Texarkana alcoholic who had already confessed to the murders one time before. <laughs> hey, dumbass, you didn't commit these murders. Calling the man out by name, Johnson said, quote, You know you didn't kill those people. What you going to do this for? <laughs> Wasting my time. The drunk replied, Well, hell, I got to fit the whiskey out of it. <laughs> so, I mean, that's nobody's even taking this seriously. Officer Mac T Max Tackett recalled that nine people tried to convince him that they were the Phantom. He said, quote, but in every case, they could not have been, for their stories didn't jive with what we knew were the detailed facts of the case. You don't tell everything you know about a case. When it gets into the paper, the real criminal finds out how much you know, and the confessors will fit those facts into their confessions. You keep yourself two or three pertinent facts to protect yourself from crackpots. And that's why they do that, yep. people. Exactly. <laughs> Now, it was thanks to Max Tackett that authorities got their first real break in this case. Tackett realized a, a pattern. He noticed that on the nights of the murders, a car would be stolen, and that on the same night, a previously stolen car would be found abandoned. Hmm. So it looks like that somebody's stealing a car, doing the crime, and then so it's never the stealing same another car. car. Twice. Right. On Friday, June 28, 1946, Tackett found a car in a parking lot that had been reported as stolen. So he stakes out this car and waits for whoever's driving it to come back to the car. He then arrested a 21-year-old girl named Peggy Sweeney. Sweeney. Yes. She said that she had just gotten married earlier that day in Shreveport but that her husband was currently in Atlanta, Texas, trying to sell another stolen car. And her husband's name was Yule Sweeney. Okay. And that's where we're going to leave it for this week. And we're going to pick up talking about old Yule Sweeney next week and find out what, if anything, he has to do with these cases. All right. All right. So, <laughs> sounds... Promising. Sound promising, huh? Paramising. Paramising. I have to wait for next week. She's got a pajab to do. I've got a pajab to do. It's my pajab <laughs> to tell you all about these murders. I do want to um, mention the references again for this episode. It's pretty much the same ones from last time. It's a, the book The Phantom Killer by James Presley. Um, some videos released by the Texarkana Museum System with presentations given by Jeremy Kennington and John Tennyson. There's an article by Prudence McIntosh at TexasMonthly.com, an article by Christy Stockton at ThoughtCatalog.com, and an article by Field Walsh at TXKToday.com. And I, and I guess I will credit the FBI site that has all the PDFs of their files on this case. I did look at those, so I guess I need to give that credit. I don't know. They're, I mean, it they're is, losing my confidence I mean, you know, every day. You know, I, don't, I guess I will. And now it's time for our dun, 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 
Crafty Criminal of the Week. Yay. And I need to also put the disclaimer that we know these people are not crafty and can barely be called criminals. So. Yes. But <laughs> I don't know now. Some of them are pretty crafty. That one last week was pretty crafty. Yeah. You know. I think he does that he, on purpose. Because he just needed somewhere to stay for the and night. And didn't have no money. Right. So he's like, well, I'll just go in here and they'll arrest me. Now, this one I'm not too sure about. Okay. There was a woman in Somerset, Massachusetts. Okay. There was? Yeah. Wow. There was. And she was arrested for breaking and entering. But she, they were able to quickly catch her thanks to an, her ankle bracelet that was a, fitted with a GPS system that she had gotten from the police. You think? For being on probation from an earlier charge of breaking and entering. Dumbass. <laughs> oh, they'll never catch me. So that is our crafty criminal of the week. Yay. These people. <laughs> y'all sit out there and y'all want to say how stupid. Well, of course they're stupid. Well, so. If they weren't stupid, they wouldn't have done all this in the first place. They're crafty. No. Like I said, like I said, they're not really crafty and can barely be called yeah. criminal. Now, don't forget that you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash onecrimepod. Our mini safe for April is out, so that's on there, um, in which we discuss the murder of Kevin Potts. Uh, so you can check that out if you wish to. Uh, you can also check out our merch at tpublic slash onecrimepod. Again, I'm going to put all the, a link to all of this on our, on this week's episode description. So you don't have to write anything down. Just hit a link and it'll take you there. And also remember, you can email us at onecrimeatatime at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at One Crime Pod on all of those. And the biggest thing you can do to help us out is go rate us and give us a written review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. We would really, mm-hmm. really, 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 really greatly appreciate it. Yes. And I also need to say this week to be sure you catch out this, check out this week's episode <laughs> of the podcast, The Coolness Chronicles. And you will hear yours truly in an interview that I did with that show. I was interviewed by host Ryan Rodriguez. We discussed our podcast, some background on how we got here, and we discussed the greatness that is the movie Raising Arizona. So be sure to check that out. I (laughs) I just want to say, go check out our other podcast, too. I promise that in two weeks we're coming back on a regular basis. Yeah, out in the sticks. You can go find that anywhere. Anywhere you're listening to this, you can find it there. It's been kind of touch and go here lately, but I promise. That's Christina's pet. I'll let her do that. It takes a lot of time. (laughs) Who Who are you telling? So. I mean, well, you pretty much, I mean, these cases, you can pretty much put it in and a whole bunch of stuff come up. Sometimes you really <laughs> have to look for the information on this other I stuff. I have to I look, mean, really look for new information that people don't know. That's the I problem mean, I run into. But I do it. I do it for you guys. But I want to give one state the biggest shout out because it doesn't matter what you look up in that state. And it's Alaska. There's like pages <laughs> and pages and pages. Who's running the Alaska website? You are awesome. <laughs> www.alaska.com. You, you people are awesome. There is just like, I went on two websites when I was looking up something in Alaska. And there was like two websites, all the information I needed. <laughs> Not Now, you, you don't have the St. Augustine Lighthouse feet <laughs> yet. 
But you're getting because there. Because they're close. You're close. All right. One day. You will get there. Okay. All right, guys. So, I guess, um, like I said, be sure to check out. It's the Coolness Chronicles with Ryan. So, check that out. And until next week, remember, only dive into one crime at a time. Bye. Bye.